You are listening to Checkbox Outreach, a podcast that showcases excellence and raises awareness of current issues from those who are directly impacted, but typically not at the table. Now, here are your hosts, Aaliyah Gaskins and Katie Leonard. Hi, welcome to Checkbox Outreach. This is Katie. And this is Aaliyah. And today we are joined by Saquon Merritt. Really excited about this conversation. Um, Saquon reached out to us to have a space and an opportunity to talk about how COVID-19 is impacting entrepreneurs, um, especially those who have been formerly incarcerated. So welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Um, You know, I hope you and your families are doing well and remaining well during these times. Um, I am doing as best as can be, you know, uh, having this trade as an electrician, um, owning a company, it you know, it kind of keeps, kind of, sort of keeps us busy. But, um, you know, we would be more busy if, if this, uh, you know, pandemic wasn't, you know, affecting us all. So it yeah, kind of, sure. you know, at a stop and then still. So Saquon, we are really excited to have you on because your voice deserves to be heard. You are doing amazing work. You have overcome adversity and you really stand for everything that we have been advocating for And so Checkbox Outreach really started as a result of our outrage of not feeling heard and of really seeing the disparities that communities of color particularly are facing because of the impacts of COVID-19. And my background is in working with communities of color, disenfranchised communities, and really looking at how do we reinvest in them in a meaningful way, which led me to my work in reentry and looking at how can I support people with criminal histories to launch companies and grow those companies. And so you align with all of those things, and I'm just really excited for what's what's in store. And we have a mutual contact, Alex Smith, right? Yes, okay. yes. And then we also seen each other at the um, Entrepreneur Award thing yes. at the program in the D.C. Pivot. Georgetown Pivot. They're doing awesome mm-hmm. work. So. Aliyah and I, I reached out to Aliyah when everything was happening with COVID about, you know, I was more upset that people with criminal histories couldn't apply for SBA funding and PPP loans were not being given to people with felony convictions, you know, through their local banks. And so I was raising the flag on this issue at the end of March. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people were like, we're in crisis mode. We can't take this serious right now. Or we're just dismissing me. And so because I was so angry and outraged, I talked to Ali and I was like, this is ridiculous. You know, people like us that are passionate, we're trying to do this great work. We do not have a platform. So we created Checkbox Outreach in response to that. I mean, that's that's dope. That's awesome. Um, you know, uh, I feel I feel the same way you feel. Um, I was I was actually on a, a town hall meeting with actually with a. Uh, Senator Ben Cardin for uh, Maryland uh, and also um, uh, Mark Rubio. Uh, and they had a town hall in QuickBooks discussing the trials and tribulations that uh, people have going through this, you know, uh, going through COVID and accessing the uh, PPB loans and um, what they're going through, even when they have the money, you know, forgiveness and things of that nature. And I said my question. Uh, as a person, you know, formerly incarcerated and a person that is now home and I, I'm still on parole also, but um, is still out here in the community uh, creating jobs as a master electrician, uh, getting jobs and hiring people that, you know, that's coming home trying to get back on their feet. And 
the question was like not not even addressed at all. They they never even mentioned it. You know, it was a whole thing said this is how the community can engage with, you know, uh, legislators and, you know, uh, lawmakers to try to um, address and have their concerns heard. And we we weren't there. You know, people formerly incarcerated uh, and people on parole that are coming home trying to do the right thing in their community, in their underserved community. Uh, what I, I, my ear, my my concerns was 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 not heard at all. Um, and again, and it's, it's difficult, man. You know, that's why you hear me, you know, kind of kind of stuttering, going back and forth. I'm usually a, a straightforward talking guy. But oh, uh, I was ready to cut people out. It's quite all yeah, right. Like I was yeah. so angry and so pissed off. And so yeah. part of I'm I'm curious if you or I'd love for you to share your mm-hmm. journey and how you got here, because part of my issue, especially dealing with people that have been incarcerated, there's this stigma attached to that. So when I've been advocating for that entrepreneur with a criminal history, I feel like so many people picture the guy rolling down the street with the junk truck and, you know, just picking up things like I really wholeheartedly think that that's the picture of the formerly incarcerated entrepreneur people have. So can you tell us kind of your journey and then what, you know, your journey to this point and then how you got involved to become a master electrician and what your company is doing? Um, yep. that, that's that's definitely interesting. Um, I, I never put it that way. The way I order, all, always categorized it is they they're just happy to say, you know, just come home and get a job or try to do your little thing and go sit over there in the corner. Don't try to make a whole lot of noise. You know, we don't we don't want to hear you. We just want you not breaking law and just go sit over there. Um, but what you said, you know, kind of looked at us as the guy with the stuff in the in the back of his pickup truck, old, beat up, and with the wood frames around it, looking like kind of like a barn <laughs> holding some, you know, um, holding some trash in there so it doesn't fall off the sides. Um, yeah, that's 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 interesting. Um, yes, and and that's I I think people do view us that way, and that's the reason why I do what I'm doing as a master electrician. And definitely trying to break hold in a commercial space as a commercial contractor and residential contractor, um, because I think that is the way they view us. Um, you know, my journey being coming here, making it to being a master electrician, just started off as a little electrician. You know, when I was back and forth in the streets, you know, hustling, electrician was kind of like my backdrop because I never planned to be Pablo Escobar or anything like that. You know, we were I was a necessity entrepreneur the wrong way. Uh, at that time in 2005, you know, just hustling the drugs in my neighborhood as a means to survive, um, which was absolutely the wrong decision. But um, that that wasn't my go to. We were just trying out there trying to make it. But I always kept the electrician in my background is, you know, this is something because I, I got to work. You know, I don't want to do this forever. And doing that one thing always took over the other. You know, the streets always end up taking care. You get locked up and then you're back and forth in the prison system you know, uh, playing, playing that game. And, um, one of my incarcerations, you know, it just comes a time where as though enough is enough. And I told myself I was going to be dead serious. So, uh, my, my last incarceration, which was 2012, I was sentenced to 25 years without parole. I, my release date was actually scheduled to 2037. And that was actually a shell shock for me. Um, because I had that sentence, for 2.3 grams of heroin, a straight low level, uh, you know, uh, low level drug conviction. And when they gave me that much time, you know, I just went in prison. I said, man, there's no way in the world that I could be sitting here to 2037 
for amount of drugs that's as big as my fingernail. And um, I made the I made the determination right there that that wasn't going to be my sentence and I was going to change. I immediately got into Goucher College. Uh, I'm thankful for God that I was at a prison that had that opportunity there. And I studied on my case. I was in Goucher College. And um, I also studied business and told myself that I'm going to make myself, you know, uh, electrical contractor. And I did everything I had to do um, moving along uh, through that five year period, 2012 to 2017. I had a lot of success. Um, I was able to earn 38 credits towards my bachelor's degree. I um, met a lot of people in the prison education and prison reform world that are doing a lot of big things now. Um, Amy Rosa, Mark Howard. And um, as I made those relationships, I was able to develop uh, my uh, defense for my case. And I ended up giving my time back. I gave the whole 25 years back and then was resentenced to 10 years without parole. And uh, I made, even though it had to without parole, I found another law that allows nonviolent drug offenders in the state of Maryland to petition for parole. And I got parole in 2017 and I end up coming home. Um, now landing here, uh, on, you know, back, back in society, uh, a person formerly incarcerated with three felonies. Uh, I said, you know, I, I didn't let that hold me back. However, my aspirations as an electrical contractor, you know, to try to be taken seriously is that's where I wanted to go. I really had, you know, no assistance navigating that path. You know, I know there's a lot of entrepreneurial programs out there to help uh, help people, you know, as businessmen, but or businessmen or women. But however, thank you. That is very important. I love that you just said that. <laughs> yeah, business. Yeah, definitely. We want to we want to keep the women in, in, in perspective. But uh, businessmen and women. But I, and I'm Katie. I'm sure you can agree. There's never anything to really take us over the top. You know, it's a, it's a little stuff for your little mom and pop store, your little cookie yeah. store, stuff like that. And, you know, you go over there or your little. But we're talking about electrical contracting with all the building they're doing in D.C. We're talking about one hundred and sixty eight million dollar contracts, projects that these big contractors are getting. That's not from D.C. We're talking about Baltimore, all of these developments. Um, I think they just announced today a uh, um, hundred and eighty million dollar grocery store and complex development here in Baltimore. Um, in we're out there as the workers, as the field guys in there, you know, banging our hammers. But where are we as contractors? You have guys, you know, as I said, again, like me, I, I was able to obtain my master electrician license. I pursued that because I know what it takes. I wanted to get that because that would allow me to pull permits and say I am a contractor. And I say I can take this building and put out a price, get some guys in here, rewire it. Let's get it done. Um, now- I feel like the other thing that's so important about what you're doing is, you know, mm-hmm. you started this by saying your business isn't just about you. You are hiring other other people who are looking for jobs and haven't been able to find work and have been in the same situation you're in and sort of paying it back and creating more opportunities for the community. Absolutely. Absolutely. Lightning Electric is threefold. Lightning Electric is justice reform. Lightning Electric is also civic engagement because um, there was ways and means I had to go to Annapolis um, to address them for uh, people with past records or ex-offenders wanting to obtain professional licenses. Right. I had to actually speak on that before I got my license. Um, And also, as you said, it's grand. Saquon, can you talk, were there barriers for, to get your master electrician license because you had a criminal history? 
Absolutely. As soon as you fill out the application, one of the questions they ask you is, have you been formally incarcerated? If you have been formally, I mean, excuse me, have you been convicted of a crime greater than a misdemeanor? And if you have, they want you to stop the application immediately right there, address your master, your board of um, electricians, which was here in Maryland, address your master, a board of electricians, and then petition to them to see if they will even allow you to take the exam through PSI. At one point, we had a construction company in the incubator. And so we were working on our Virginia licensing for that construction company. Everybody affiliated had a criminal history. And so the packet we submitted, because what my frustration was, is they wanted all charges. And so we had four people that we were submitting, our qualified employee and the different officers of the company. They wanted the charges from every single state. Like I sent a book to Richmond. It was ridiculous. In your position trying to do that, there's a cost. You have to pay for every disposition you want a record of. You have to pay for the postage. You have to pay for all of these things in addition to writing your summary of what your charges were. So somebody not in the justice space, I'm curious if you guys can kind of walk me through this a little bit, because I think mm-hmm. it might be helpful for our listeners, too. So when you um, when you're trying to pull these permits and you're trying to go through this process, like if you're new to this, where do you even go for help to figure oh. out which form, which paperwork you got to figure out? And as Katie said, as the cost mount, like where are the resources to be able to pay for some of these supports that you might need? just to get the paperwork to be able to do the work that you're trying to do. And again, man, I, I really, really love that question because um, that, that question and what, what you asked, there is no support. I've experienced, I've gone through this road of, I've had my master electrician license coming on a year now, about 10 months. And all of the paperwork having to navigate through, there was no assistance. There's no help. It's like, there's nobody... Um, actually even, or there's nothing in space to actually prepare a person to actually become a contractor, a construction contractor. Um, th- there isn't any, um, all of my reciprocation, because again, let me break this down to you. Um, when I have my, when I obtain my master's state license in the state of Maryland, I still have to reciprocate that license in every jurisdiction to do work in there within the state of Maryland. Let's say for instance, Baltimore County. If I wanted to pull a permit in Baltimore County, I have to reciprocate my Maryland state license in Baltimore County and apply to them, pay them a reciprocation fee, which is around three to four hundred dollars. Right. The same thing I went through the state of Maryland. Answer the question. I even hit a bump there because they asked you, have you been convicted of any crimes? I'm like, I just went through this. And, you know, I, I had to navigate. Right. I just told you this. Right. Submit the exactly. Submit the paperwork again. In each county. Now, mind you, that's only Baltimore County. With the permission of God, I got my license reciprocated in seven counties in the state of Maryland. Each was five hundred dollars. There was no help or no assistance navigating my way through that. Also, even the MBE's um, minority business certification. With the permission of God, I obtained that. That was done again by myself. Right. It is very intense. And I mean, you can you can start giving up. I had to take jobs just to get that. Also, let's talk about insurance. You also need general liability insurance to operate in the state of Maryland. That's the only thing that makes you legal. You need automobile insurance if you're keeping your truck. 
And you need workman's comp even for yourself if you don't have any employees. <laughs> but again, you know, and, and I'm like I said, I'm so uh, I'm glad that I really had this platform. And I, I've also started um, a Facebook page called Minority Contractors Aspiring to Be More, where I am speaking about a lot of these front office uh, things that's needed. Right. A lot of these paperwork that's needed that we have to go through. Um, to try to expose and tell tell brothers that because that's the reason why a lot of us don't take these steps to become a contractor because not yeah. only do we not have a s- assistance or support we don't know I mean it's oblivious like the amount of paperwork well, on the record on the record I will formally offer I can help in that space you know I would be happy to be a part of that conversation because you do need that and you also I'm finding in any work whenever you have an other group, right? Whether that's a mm-hmm. black woman, whether that's a formerly incarcerated male, whatever that might be, we need the people who are already at the table to really understand the message and to let us, you know, to let our story in. Because I've gotten a lot of headway because somebody believed in me and was like, no, you need to talk to Katie or you need to, you know, hear what she's saying. So what would you be looking for, you know, in terms of application processes or business development master like what do you need like right now right now exactly what i need right now i need a cost estimator (laughs) (laughs) this is another thing that's 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 not done like um so i'm trying to go into commercial space again with the permission of god i i I am i'm going to lead the path to a multi-million dollar company and i'm going to take care of my people doing that um now doing that like now i i have a $100,000 $100,000 contract. I'm not going to say what it is, but I have a $100,000 contract. I had to get bonded for that. I didn't know that. Like they looked, they they sent me, I bid on it, did my cost estimating for it, which took days. And again, we don't have enough of our people that know cost estimating. I got emails that come to my, um, I have emails that come to my box, my business box all day long, at least 10, 20 a day saying, are you bidding? Are you bidding? Are you bidding? Are you bidding? It's me. And I got four guys in the field. You know, they're really just really workers. I got to, you know, help them navigate. I got to make sure material is ordered. I got to get on phone calls. I'm the face of the company. I got to shake the hands and meet the owner and the homeowners and make sure things are peachy and smile and, you know, do that, fix things when it's going wrong. I really don't have time. I was going to say, no, I'm struck. I want to go back earlier when we started. You said you were on this call and you're on this call with the state legislature state legislator and other elected officials, and you ask them this question around what they're doing for other business owners like you. I'm just wondering, given what you've talked about of just the challenges and barriers and things that your company has faced, what were you hoping they would have said? Like, what would, what do you need them to be doing for your business as well? I would definitely, I would need them to remove, um, I think it's uh, subsection N, which says that no one on parole or probation can access these loans. Uh, they can access SBA loans. I, I would like to say they're working on removing that. I would like them to say they're working on finding us access to capital so we can move. I mean, I don't even want a loan. I just need a line of credit. So when jobs come through, that's $100,000 jobs. I'm not hounding a general contractor or uh, or owner for money to get paid so we can make payroll. You know, these contracts, we're talking about electricians here. My, my guys, I pay my guys $20 something an hour. They work eight hour days. Come on. We, we talk about once a piece. Yeah. 
And that goes back that goes back to what you were saying before about mm-hmm. when you know there are a lot of programs, whatever it might be, and what they offer people, it might be twenty five hundred dollars. I've seen people get excited over five hundred dollars to say, Hey, start your company with that or do this with your company. And when you look at the entrepreneurs mm-hmm. and the business owners like yourself that have that payroll, when your payroll might be eight thousand dollars every two weeks, twelve thousand mm-hmm. dollars every two weeks. That's a whole That's, different conversation. This is this is what I'm telling you. And we have the means and with the, you know, with the permission of God, I have the mindset to be there. We can do the work. We in there doing most of these work and these projects. It's just these front office things. And again, capital. Um, you know, mm-hmm. when people get excited, I, I'm not gonna, you know, I, I sometimes I get upset at those entrepreneur programs because I feel as though when they give someone $500 and tell them to start their business and take them through six months or seven or eight months of program, and you never even filled out an LLC application. You never even filled out your articles and organization for your LLC. They didn't even have it in the program. But they give you these daunting business plans and projections for five years and things of that nature that you really have no, really no idea about. Yeah, they want to see it when you apply for a loan and, and you know things like that. That's something you go through, but you need to be worrying about doing the work of your business, right? Also, the things to make your business, like I said, the articles of organization, applying for your minority business enterprise or your CBE if you're in um if you're if you're in DC, things like that. I don't even see that. And it's see- right. it's kind of like doing the plan is you're doing is one- you're, you're smoke screening people all the way up until six or seven or eight months, and then you tell them start your business, like you're you're burning people out. I I just, you know, like I said, I've seen these programs. And then another thing, a lot of these programs are also during during the daytime, even the training just for MBE. They got to realize us as minorities, we got to maintain employment. We're still trying to make make ends meet. We would love to just haul off and quit like me. I still have a job. I work at Arnold and Porter Law Firm. I work there eight hours a day. I'm trying to find ways between my lunch breaks to make phone calls and things of that nature and keep things going. I can't even focus on lightning electric uh, 24-7. I just found out that there was there was fellowships that actually help you out. I had no idea that that was available. It's a fellowship, I believe, in Baltimore um, that'll give you $60,000 for 18 months for projects within a community. I, I missed that train. I, that bid was due um, March the 28th. And I was upset at a lot of the business lender groups in, that I was going to that I'm in talks with that were working with me. It's like, did you not mention this to me? Like, you know, kind of like my plight. This one have been perfect for me to apply for. And I have it. With the permission of God, we had $180,000 just off the ground, off Craigslist revenue last year. I mean, I have none of that money now. <laughs> you know, we oh. pay employees, we pay $80,000, you know, in, in, um, you know, in wages and things of that nature. And again, we, I, I can't even say my employees, they're 1099 contractors. Cause I can't even afford to make them employees because we don't have any means to pay the, the medical and benefits. Yeah. We, Aaliyah, Aaliyah, you started to say something about a plan. Right. Oh no. I was going to say, you talked about how so many of these programs just focus on creating the business plan itself, but 
it sounds like the real work that needs to be done is once the plan is created, what's the support for implementation and to keep going and to make sure your business can thrive. And I think that's where there seems to be a gap. And I feel like not having people like you and your voice at the table, we end up creating more programs that, like you said, are offered at lunchtime or offered at a time where nobody can participate or even know they exist in order to bring those resources into your business. Absolutely. And, you know, I really feel like, you, let me be straight straight and blunt, these programs, all it's really doing is funding the directors and the people that teach the program. That's who's benefiting. And then they get a big picture up and, you know, shirts and stuff like that and happy graduation. It's like graduation to what? Which one of those entrepreneurs did you take over the hump? Which one of those yeah. entrepreneurs are on their way? Because it's and a it's bunch and, on their way. That's the, and that's the support that I believe is needed for any marginalized group, but particularly, you know, people that have been touched by the criminal justice system, because there's not the blueprint of success that they're handed down. So when you look at wealth in America and what the conversations that happen around dinner tables, you know, we as people of color typically aren't privy to those conversations. And you look at the environment and you look at capital and all of these things that go together. So the way that I work with entrepreneurs is I need you to be head down doing the work, leading your crew, leading your company, while all that back office fluff on the back end is taken care of, right? Because it has right. to be a true partnership. And I've had a lot of lessons, a lot of harsh, harsh lessons the past two years in that because business is business and business is hard. But when you look at people that have criminal histories and that they're almost forced to go into entrepreneurship in some cases. The supports just have to have to match up. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. I completely agree. Completely agree. Um, and you know, one more thing I, I I say as you as you, you know, just going back and forth about the things we go through, I know this COVID nineteen thing is a is a pandemic, you know, is and it's and it's unprecedented. But I must say, aside from the disease, it's not unprecedented for us. Not for, you know, ex-offenders or people formerly incarcerated or just the underserved minority community, period. It's not for us being ignored, not having access to financing. It's business as usual, (laughs) you know, and I chuckle at that, you know, not in, you know, a sense of malice, but it's like, just like, what can I do? If I don't laugh, I'm gonna cry. You know, what can we do? It gets tough. But, you know, I, I have found a way to, um, I look at it, I keep pushing. You know, when, when I was hit with that 25 years, no parole, you know, I, I every single year I petitioned to my judge to, you know, get, get some type of relief and I got denied. And it just turned me up even more. It just pushed me even more. So with this, I'm fine. I found that I couldn't get it. I'm good. I'm still pushing. We're still pushing. I'm, I'm glad that I, I've worked with my um, with my insurance company and they 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 issued me the bond. You know, we're, I think though that's the part. I mean, that's that, so, that, that, I mean, that that's was, the part. Mm-hmm, go ahead. Um, no, I was going to say that that's the part that gets me so frustrated because I feel like we constantly have to keep pushing. That's the only way we survive. And yeah. I feel like, you know, some of us are really good at it. Some of us aren't. I think we have proven over and over that black and brown folks, we're not just, you know, we're not just sitting around waiting for somebody to give us something. We are pushing every day. But I, I'm hoping that coming out of COVID-19, like people realize this push is unsustainable. It can't just be carried 
our backs and that we have to change the system. We have to do something different, whether it's getting legislation that removes a piece that you talked about, creating programs that are just offered at the right time of day, or right. come along with some sort of capital incentive. Like, how do we get people to do that instead of returning to, well, they'll make it anyway if they just hustle harder? Right. Right. Yeah. It's like it, it has to end. And I, I, I'm completely agree with that, too, because I don't want to be a person that's always combative, always looking for the problem. I want to I want to know. I want to look for the solution. You know, once we identify the problem, what's the solution? How do we get over this? And um, I think one of the things is, like, as you said, why aren't we offering these programs in the daytime? Um, another thing, if guys really plan on entrepreneurship, why don't we have any programs in prison working on guys credit? Because that's another thing I'm finding out. You, you think because you have an EIN number or you have your LLC, oh, I can get business credit. Everything, everything hinges on your personal credit. Everything. Every loan I went for, they say your personal credit. And with the permission of God, I'm just getting that in order. You know, that's imperative for me to get the line. <laughs> <laughs> that is a whole nother hour in some change. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, it, you know, it, it's it's a bundle. It's a bundle package. In order for us to, you know, really excel and inspire as, as entrepreneurs, we have to have all those things together and access the capital to grow. You know, I mean, we got to have that room, man, unless we always got to be at a bottleneck, at a bottleneck. I'm at a point right now where as though I have a lot in my hands. I have, you know, I, I got my MBA. I have all the credentials. I'm in talks with some big company. They, they feel my story. And I don't want to fumble. So, you know, I'm just trying to make sure I'm using my resources right and sitting back and thinking, reaching out to the right people, being a little bit more patient so I don't drop the ball that I have in my hand. Because um, another thing, you know, that that light and electric in all of us, we have to be that identity that people identify with. That's the reason why I'm bigger. That's the reason why light and electric is something different than these other electrical companies you know, that they're pushing people to, because I can identify when I say that you're coming with this company and you have a different place outside of just working in the field, we want to make you cost estimating. You may be a material guy. You may be a permit guy. All of those front office positions, because I found out most of the company, 20% of it is working in the field. 80% of it is back office stuff. It's stuff that I'm and I think what- four o'clock in the morning <laughs> with. What your story highlights, though, is that these programs, they have to start like if they first of all, they should be starting in our I think in our education system from K through 12 and making sure that there there's opportunities for the trades and other learning. But in your situation, being able to while you were serving time to be able to get the credits you needed, the support you needed, the mentorship, like starting there. And like you said, everyone may not be the CEO of the company, but there is a trade or there is a skill that they could be working on and learning so that when they come out, they're positioned to pick up these jobs and we're not continuing to penalize people for one mistake. Um, so I guess, you know, we are just so grateful for your time. I was telling Katie, I was like, I don't want to stop this interview. I just want to keep talking <laughs> and hear everything you have to say. And you've covered so much. I guess if you had to leave our listeners with one thing as to how they could help move forward or support more entrepreneurs who have been formerly incarcerated, what, what would your advice to them be? What would you say? Um, really be sincere, man. And if you, if you have a mentor and you see someone, you know, that's, that's aspiring as an entrepreneur, Try to try to match them up. 
try to match them up, man. Try to match them up with someone that, again, a, a mentor that's going to be sincere, that's up the ladder, and just sit them there. Just sit them there. Sit them there, man. Um, and moving forward, how can our listeners engage with you, whether it's on these conversations or shit, even if they just need an electrician, how do they get in touch with you? <laughs> you can get in touch with me. At, uh, you could you could call me directly or you could reach me. Uh, we have a we have a we have an Instagram page called Be More Electric. Uh, you can you can reach us there. We also have a website, Lightning Electric md.com and through those venues and I, I I think I don't know if you gonna bleep it out or not but you can call me if <laughs> 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 you want to put it out there we will not bleep it out this is your business yeah. we'll try phone to number phone out. number directly <laughs> 443-480-5589 you will hear my message that's my direct line lightning electric 443-480-5589 Saquon Murray yes I love that you repeated it too. There's no yeah. way people could get the number wrong. Absolutely. <laughs> so much. Awesome. This was an amazing conversation and I'm excited for more. So that's right. like a, Katie, that's, that's me Katie, letting you know. Up, Katie. Me and There's you was going to link up, Katie. I know, I know. I dropped the ball. Months ago. <laughs> <laughs> but it ain't nothing. It ain't nothing. I, I'm, I'm still, I'm still here grinding, man. I'm still here I grinding. Got I got you now. I just, I just can't stop. I got to keep moving. Absolutely. Well, right. thank you so much for your time and uh, we will be in touch for sure. Yeah. All right. Same to thank y'all. You. Y'all be safe. Y'all remain safe out there. It's time for action. Checkbox Outreach is more than a podcast and simply putting a check in a box. This is about impact and moving the needle. Aaliyah and Katie, what are the next steps? Okay, Aaliyah, that was such a great episode. Saquon is awesome. I'm inspired. It, it was powerful. Yes, I kind of hate that we have this segment now because I would have loved to end on his promotion of sharing his phone number over and over. I want to make sure that we play that again, <laughs> maybe at the end of the episode. I am committed to getting Saquon some new customers. Yeah, and I ha- I'm going to publicly apologize to Saquon because he called me out and I'm, you know, I kept it in the episode because I dropped the ball. We we had been trying to get together probably about 6 months ago and it was a yeah, 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 I'll get to it. I'll get to it. I'll get to it. And so that's totally my bad and this is the most public apology I can possibly do. So I hope he appreciates it. Um, but all in all, I'm just this was a timely discussion. Clearly he reached out to us because of his concerns for, you know, access to the payroll protection program money and it not being available for people with criminal histories or who are currently on probation or parole. And so I know the businesses that I'm affiliated with, those entrepreneurs are currently on parole and do not have any type of recourse available to them. And so the things that he talked about, I'm just really glad that he shed light on on his issues as an entrepreneur, as a successful entrepreneur in, in what's not available for him. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to be very vulnerable with you right now. I feel like until we talk to Saquon and we've had the opportunity, you know, you and I have been having conversations with other individuals who our listeners will soon hear from. I, I don't know if I was living under a rock or in a bubble, but many of these issues I did not know about. And a word that has continued to come up 
um, in these conversations has been around rehabilitation. And I think that what's taking away for me or what's coming up for me is that if incarceration is supposed to be rehabilitative and it's supposed to help people, you know, gain skills or um, shift mindsets and create new opportunities, then we have to find better ways of transitioning people back into their community. I felt like as I listened to Saquon, I heard him say, you know, over and over when he was incarcerated, he was taking classes. He was doing everything he needed so that by the time he got out, he was set up to start his business. Yet every hurdle at each step of the way from signing the paper, filling out the application, having to prove that he is even worthy or qualified to apply for his license, and then having classes being offered at times when he can't go. And then now with PPE, it's like we've set up constantly over and over these different barriers that almost continue to punish him for gaining the skills that were supposed to help him, you know, get on his feet and launch his business in a timely manner. There's so many things. I think we could have probably an eight hour conversation in this, but one of the things that you just said, incarceration and rehabilitation, you can't really do rehabilitation and they don't even mean the same things, right? And so Mm -hmm. how do we as a society come together and say, can we rehabilitate without incarcerating? We have this massive Mm -hmm. mass incarceration problem. Do we have to put people behind bars? It's expensive. There are some jurisdictions, there was a study um, that said up to almost $80,000 a person to incarcerate them. And that's, you know, more than a, an Ivy League education. So if that route looks differently for those people that we can say, hey, we want to pour the resources that maybe you weren't getting right from the jump and not put you behind bars, put you in a cage and think that that's going to fix you. And then when you serve your time, you pay your debt to society, you get out. And just like you said, there's hurdle, hurdle, barrier, scarlet letter on you with that. You know, I've heard some of them say they have this F for felon on their chest all Mm -hmm. the time. And this is a federal issue. It's a state issue. It's a local issue. And we really need to look at how do we view people that have served time? How do we, you know, approach them, engage them and support them and not always punish them for what they've done in their past? Right. I want to go back to something you said, because I think right now in the conversation, we have focused on sort of what happens once you've been incarcerated and kind of the you know, the end part of this process. But what you brought up is what happens when you haven't gotten support and resources from the jump? And that makes me think of, you know, starting all the way back to like preschool and our early education systems and family. And I'm struck by, I will never forget this, but Saquon said, he was like, I wasn't trying to be Pablo Escobar. I was out here as a necessity entrepreneur. Like what are the conditions that we have not created to support our families when it comes to education, income, health, wealth creation, housing, that then creates conditions where you have to be a necessity entrepreneur or you feel like you have to do something maybe illegally, in order just to make ends meet and to provide? Like, how do we start at the very early years and the very invest, I guess, invest at the front end of the spectrum is what I'm trying to say. What is it going to take to do something then and interventions then that work well so that we're not having the conversation later on about should this person be incarcerated? What should be, you know, what's the punishment or what's the way that we're going to deal with um, the choices that they've made later on? And we're always learning. And I was new in the reentry space and I came into it from hearing the stories just like Saquon, that they can't get jobs. Mm -hmm. People won't rent them housing or apartments. 
people won't let their kids play with their kids, whatever it might be, and thinking, oh, I can solve that through business. Done. It's right here on this on this mm-hmm. timeline of someone's life cycle. But when we look at this type of issue and any issue, any, you know, social issue, any health issue, it's about the life cycle of the person. So from when mm-hmm. that person is born to when they pass away, in their life cycle, where are we supporting them? So when you look at, you know, parenting, fatherhood, all of those implications before a child is even brought into the world. And then mm-hmm. you look at, you know, where can we provide those supports for them in pre-K, in elementary, in high school, in trades or in college if they go that route. I mean, it is such a, a long spectrum and it's a different conversation. We can't just come in and say, oh yeah, while they're while we have them in prison, they shouldn't get their best education there. Right. And I have such a problem with that because that happens a lot. How come they can get the certification, the GED and everything while they're behind bars, but they couldn't get it when they were at home because they had to do different things for necessity. Right. And I'm not a crime sympathizer. I think that people should be punished appropriately for when they do things wrong, but the punishment doesn't always equal the crime. And the crime, like I said, it and Saquon said it better than I could ever say it, the crime is carried with them throughout their whole entire life. No, I mean, there's so many, I think, different ways that we could go when we think about some of the issues he raised. I mean, I know one of the reasons why we started this podcast is we want to be able to drive folks to, then how do we respond and what's the action we take? I think there's the the real ask here goes to yeah. our policy and our decision makers. And demanding the accountability and the metrics and making sure that it is it's meaningful and we aren't still punishing we aren't still keeping people behind the eight ball and it's telling them like that you know people just don't have opportunity and this lady that I talked to a while ago she was talking about women's issues and the glass ceiling and mm-hmm. she was like sometimes the problem isn't the glass ceiling it's the sticky floor And I thought that was so powerful. When we look at our policies, we look at our mindsets, we look at our behaviors, it might be the sticky floor that's preventing us from from moving forward. Right. I mean, there was one point in the conversation where Saquon talked about he went to sort of, I guess, a support program for entrepreneurs, and it was all focused on how do you create the business plan? How do you create the plan to launch your business? And then he did the plan, but there was no support for implementation. And I think it's things like that that continue to keep people stuck to the ground. If you have a plan, but you don't have the support systems you need or the resources or the capital to be able to then implement that plan, then it's just a plan on the shelf. And so I think it is really going to our policymakers. It is going to some of the folks who design and lead these programs and asking about, you know, when is the program offered? Is this an effective time? What's being offered in the program? What outcomes does that curriculum or does that way of setting up the design of the program, what does it lead to? And if we're not meeting the mark, if we're not actually helping people create thriving businesses, then what do we need to do to change this program to better achieve those results? And it's the continual evaluation. What are the implications of that? And so I have a big problem right now that people's first inclination is to say, well, we have ban the box or let's do ban the box. And what Saquon talked about with the PPP, with the SBA funding, the box is there, right? Like the question is there, have you ever been convicted of a crime? When you look at jobs, the box may or may not be there. But 
what's what are the implications of ban the box? So when the box isn't there, research has found that black and brown men are automatically assumed to have the criminal mm-hmm. history when they come to the interview. And the background check is going to come up at some point along the way. And so how are we addressing that? When the background check does come up, are organizations still hiring people with felony convictions? Are you hiring people that might have a violent offense on their record? And so those are the conversations we need to have. And I'm not knocking it. I'm not saying that it's bad. It was perfectly well-intentioned. It was, you know, the the goal is, is correct. Like, let's get that off of the conversation. Let's get that off of the plate. But where is it becoming a problem? Where is it becoming a problem when it's there, when the box is there? And where is it a problem when it's not there? Right. I feel like we often say that our policymakers need to ask tough questions and they need to be, you know, engaged in these conversations. I think the biggest issue is that our policymakers don't always listen to the response that comes back, whether it's what you're raising about some of the challenges with Ban the Box, or even when Saquon said he was on this call with our state legislators and other um, elected officials, and they asked the question of what's needed. And then he asked the question, he responded with, here's what's needed, or what are you going to do for folks like me? And the call was silent. And I think that that's a big challenge. We can't just ask people, we can't just ask our elected officials to you know, have conversations. We need to equip them to be better listeners because there are different stories, there are different nuances. And if we're not pulling that in, then we're going to continue to create policies that have so many unintended consequences. Yeah. And it's theory versus action. And it's, you know, what are we setting out to do, but compared to what does this look like in real life? And whether it's reentry, whether it's the second chance around, we want, you know, viable, healthy, crime-free communities. Like, nobody says, I don't want that. Right. But what does the action really look like to get us there? And then the other piece I quickly want to touch on is the PPP funding, the SBA loans for entrepreneurships that don't have the same experience. They don't have the same background as your quote unquote typical entrepreneur. And so it's about policy at the at the local level in terms of banking. And so supporting mm-hmm. our community banks, I tell every entrepreneur that I work with, the most important relationship you can have is with your smaller community bank. Um, you know, there are larger banks out there, but your relationship with the smaller one is where your magic is going to happen. So supporting those, supporting our community development finance institutions and how they do lending to non-traditional business owners or business owners of color. And so having that conversation on the policies at our local level for business lending and business loans and business support is really, really needed. And it has to, again, be intentional. It has to be something that we go into it and we're ready to fix it. We're ready to evolve. We're ready to address it as we learn more, as we get more data and make sure that we're actually meeting the needs that people actually have. I love the way you frame that, though, because I think too often it's easy to say, well, okay, why don't you go build a relationship with your local bank? And yes, relationships are important, but if you're going to the bank and you don't know who to talk to, or you've never had to build these type of relationships, it's not just on you. There's a policy and a system conversation that needs to happen around like the practices of our banking industry. Who do they lend to? Who do they not lend to? What are the ways that we can challenge and hold them accountable for helping folks who are 
entrepreneurs who have been formerly incarcerated. And it's not just on that person to have a strong relationship with them, but it's really the system that enables that relationship and presents them with options of different products or resources for how they can then access capital. Aaliyah, I think you just solved the problem. Good job. (laughs) Done and done. Done and done. (laughs) One day, one day. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to Checkbox Outreach. The conversations about second, third, fourth, fifth, even sixth chances have to be coupled with policy change and true systems change. Please check out our other conversations at checkboxoutreach.com or find us on Twitter at Disrupt Outreach.